and welcome back to Butter With That. Thank you for joining us today, our lovely listeners. Uh, we hope you got to check out our quarantine catch-up episode. Uh, and I want to first start off with that. Sam has joined us again. Yay! Um, I said that you were at a Chris Evans lookalike contest. How did that go? Oh, really great. Turns out Chris Evans was there. He won, and we're happily married. Who knew? Word. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, we have a special episode for you folks today. Um, we've been spending the past couple of weeks uh, trying to figure out um, the best way to kind of talk about something that feels very socially relevant. Um, and so we are focusing this episode on four movies by black filmmakers, four very different movies, uh, but also four films that have a lot of similarities. Um, we're not sure how long this episode is going to go. We're talking about four movies. Um, and so in my mind, I kind of think of this as just sort of like our introduction into focusing on black cinema. We have talked about black filmmakers, but I think it's really awesome that we have a whole episode now devoted to four films by people of color, starring people of color. Um, I think that's really awesome. And so we're going to turn, I'm going to turn the first uh, movie over to Christine. So I'm super excited to delve into this collection of black filmmakers and use the space to amplify their work. Uh, while understanding and recognizing some of the limitations we'll have discussing these movies as white viewers, but also really use this as an opportunity to to learn, to deepen our conversations, our thinking, uh, and really lay the groundwork for growing and moving forward and working on diversifying our film choices and our aspects of conversation and our critical thinking uh, throughout these episodes. The movie that uh, I watched um, and brought to the group was a movie called Water, Water, what, oh my God, Watermelon Woman, uh, which is a movie I had never seen before, but actually saw it when it was on the Criterion uh, channel uh, and was really interested to see this movie. This movie was written and directed by uh, Cheryl Dunye. It was shot by Michelle Crenshaw and it's a 1996 docu-fiction film in which writer-director Cheryl Dunye plays a version of herself and depicts her experiences as a black lesbian living in Philadelphia and working at a video store, spending her time researching and making a documentary about uh, a black actress named Faye Richards, uh, who played stereotypical roles in the 1930s movies and in, throughout these movies was only credited as Watermelon Woman. Uh, and the story weaves together aspects of Dunye's real life. It also incorporates old film footage, uh, archived film history, street interviews, all techniques that Dunye calls the Dunye mentry. Uh, and although by the end of the movie, audiences actually realize that Faye Richards was a fictional creation, um, sh- through the movie, Cheryl gives Faye Richards a really rich and multifaceted story by weaving together oral histories and created archived material. Um, and so we see Cheryl's kind of day-to-day life, but we also see Faye Richards um, and the life sh- that she lived, uh, dating a white female director in the 1930s um, and becoming a successful singer and performer in Philadelphia. And so... And it was set in Philadelphia, which was really a fun uh, watch to see mid-90s footage, like real footage of of Philadelphia and recognizable uh, sites and spaces and things like that. So kind of 
the way I thought I would frame this was um, kind of cutting over to an interview. There's some really, really wonderful interviews with uh, Cheryl all over YouTube and talking about this really seminal work. Um, and so what I was going to cut to was a quick interview um, in which she talks about why she wanted to make Watermelon Woman. And I'm just going to play this interview right here. Yes. Um, I came up with the idea of the Watermelon Woman um, during, after I graduated from Rutgers University where I went to graduate school. And I started to research um, black lesbian film history. And there is none. Uh, there's a few makers, but there is no sort of images. So I, I pulled it apart. I said, well, let me just look up sort of what, it, what black lesbians look like in Hollywood, and let me look like uh, what black lesbian life looked like. And there were two separate archives. The black lesbian imagery um, in Hollywood, was there was none. Um, and then the black images of women in history, there was some. So I said, well, if I want to, if I'm going to wait and, and really find information that's not going to be there because these lives weren't recorded or considered valued, I'm going to have to make this up. So why don't I make a film about myself making this up? Um, and one of my influences in uh, filmmaking, um, uh, David Holtzman's Diary, Diary by Jim McBride is one of the films. Um, also a German film, and I don't remember the director's name, but Nasty Girl, who also looks up her history and sort of makes up interesting um, archival footage with uh, rear projection. Okay, so I want to pause it there. Um, so Cheryl gives some really great context for um, kind of the how and why she decided to make the film. Um, and I, I, something that really struck me while I was watching it was this experimental and innovative approach to crafting stories of underrepresented voices. Um, and I, Cheryl, at one point at the end of the movie, says, like, if you can't find your history, just, like, create it. Um, and I thought that was really interesting uh, as someone who part of my job is to interpret history and historic records. And like, I'm told to find evidence, draw conclusions, create a narrative, but this film really questions and subverts that approach. Um, especially as Junye, a black lesbian filmmaker is looking for black lesbian Hollywood history. Um, and highlights the fact that historic marginalization of black voices, queer voices, creates a situation in which traditional methodologies don't work. Um, so she creates a story uh, for Faye Richards and, um, and endows that with narrative power um, and endows that power to real people that existed but whose stories weren't told. Um, we, while you, I was just curious, while you guys were watching this movie, did you, what did you think about, did you think that Faye Richards was real or were you, were you kind of clued into the fact that it was a creation from the beginning? I feel like I kind of realized it early on, but like also definitely knew that it was like, oh, she's like telling the story of like women who like had to play these like mammy characters and stuff to like basically get work in Hollywood at the time, um, which like I just thought was interesting in and of itself. But yeah, like then there were points too when she's like looking through the archives and stuff, or maybe I was like, maybe this is like more real than I think it is. So it was like, it was interesting that like she, she does decide to like use like a fictional character to like create 
a narrative that like I assume exists out there somewhere like we but we just like don't have those histories you know yeah. I feel like I was just consuming the movie. I was like letting it wash over me. And so I was like 100%. Yeah. Faye Richards is a, is a real person. And then after the movie ended, I was like, oh, well, you know, I can see the moments where it was actually just like, you know, like a symbolism and a metaphor, but there was actually like a few moments throughout the movie where I was like, is this possible? And it was just like, she was having a very difficult time finding information about Faye Richards and then yet wasn't like was able to talk to her mom about this and knew that Faye Richards was in the club in Philadelphia. And I, I found that like hard to believe. And then, so once I got to the end, I was like, Oh, okay. I get it. That, I love that interview with her mom uh, when her mom's like, yeah, I, I recognize, I recognize her. And that's why I kept thinking. I was like, Oh, this must be. Cause it's like, I, I recognize this is her mother. And so fame, Richards must be real. I, I was kind of, yeah, it wasn't until the end. <laughs> it's like, she didn't exist. Um, and so some of the photographic uh, evidence or uh, the photography of Faye Richards um, was actually created by New York-based photographer Zoe Leonard. Uh, and the collection was actually exhibited in galleries uh, and as a book and auctioned off as a fundraiser to help um, make money, uh, or generate money for the production. Um, which I thought was interesting because it's like this fictional archived material actually then gets put into collections and it's sort of the, like develops a life of its own. Um, and again, other elements in this movie, uh, interesting blurring of reality and fiction, uh, Dunier, incorporates a lot of just friends in her life to play characters. Um, and as we mentioned, she interviews her mother. Um, she interviews Camilla or Camille Paglia, who's like a feminist scholar in a really weird, what did you guys think of that interview? What, is she a real professor or is She's that? She's a real person, okay. yeah. <laughs> I th the person who I was watching it with that uh, was one of my roommates we both went is she for real this is the 90s like yeah I, I, I yeah I was like very uh, the, when she's like yeah this, for context this is like a, a white female scholar feminist scholar and in the interview she starts talking about how the experiences of watermelon woman are like just like her own in her childhood. And I was like, maybe Dunye wanted this real scholar to like make fun of her or like to create this sort of like satirical uh, and self-aware interview. But I was like, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, well, there's something to be said too, though, I think about some of the substance of what she's saying as far as um, a study of like, the history of racial imagery and like um, the, the sort of like American pop racist association of like uh, uh, African-American eating habits and watermelon and stuff like that. But watermelon itself being a symbol of like uh, of uh, fertility and like actual like sustenance and uh, that the, the racist history of robbing that of that context and making it solely about a, a reflection on race that it devalues the experience or, or the, our understanding of how that intersects with that community. So I don't know. It, it felt, it felt awkward and weird 
but it, I don't know. It was, it was an interesting perspective in some regards, I think, as far as decoding how symbols of racism have devolved from, have devolved in a sense from their, their actual like historical transracial context into a myopic and reductive version of themselves. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant scene also because it's kind of a long interview and it's like this scholar explaining concepts, but taking a really long time. I, I feel like I had to think through uh, or like revisit that interview. Um, but that, that was just something that stuck out to me. Um, it stands out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, it's just a, but yeah. But so some things uh, that I was kind of researching um, in, within the context of the movie uh, and was some new ideas that I was com- coming across, or new ideas for me that I was coming across in some of the other interviews that I was um, listening to with Cheryl Dunier was kind of the emergence of this movie within the context, in the early 90s, with the context of um, the new queer cinema movement. Um, she mentions this multiple times in a lot of different talks she gives and um, kind of just a quick de- definition of new queer cinema was first uh, coined in the early 90s to define and describe a movement in queer-themed independent filmmaking in the early 90s. I said that before early. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to quick cut to this last clip here where she talks about um, kind of her filmmaking approaches and this film in that larger context. Let me cut to that right now. Black lesbian film history today is, you know, hasn't expanded as much as we would say uh, or kept up with sort of new queer cinema, right? I think new queer cinema has evolved to the point where we have a wonderful maker, uh, director like Todd Haynes, who was birthed around the same time as I was, um, who now has this big, you know, Oscar, you know, contending hit called Carol with, you know, actors and, you know, getting a lot of support. But all the films that kind of came out around that time with new queer cinema, even the fabulous Paris is Burning with, with, um, Jenny Livingston, you know, where did, what happened to her career and what happened to those bodies in that film? So, um, where you saw The Watermelon Woman, which, you know, came a little bit later than 91 when New Queer Cinema was, was birthed, all of, you know, my, my colleagues and all this sort of short film and imagery that was happening in the sort of birth of New Queer Cinema, none of it evolved. Um, about 10 years after The Watermelon Woman, we do get a, a young, wonderful maker named Dee Reese who made the film Pariah. Um, we have a few other films by a few other folks, but for the most part, you're looking at in the feature world, and I would not say in the doc world. And then in the doc world, it's still, you know, there's just not a lot of work that's being supported I would, and, 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 and shown in those venues where we would, you know, at film festivals that are non-LGBT film festivals or at theaters where, um, you know, they have exhibition and, 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 and people can go and see these things. We do see them at local and lesbian and gay film festivals on that level, but in the sort of national and international sense, we're not seeing that work, nor is that work supported. And I must be very clear that Hollywood does not want it, Indiewood does not want it, um, and, you know, there are a few moves in global production that do allow it, and I would say to come out in documentary, but 
no, we, we don't have a, a plethora of, of films made by and about black, queer, lesbian, whatever you want to say, lives. We do have images. Now, imagery is a different thing. Um, Orange is the new black, you know, all these sort of characters that are dropped in as sort of the, you know, magical Negro, as I would say, in, in these films. So they do appear, they, they don't have much of a storyline, but it does show diversity in, 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 in representation, but not in front and, and behind the camera. Is it balanced? Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So from, uh, from that clip, um, just kind of this idea of, and for context, this clip was from 2016. And so I'm really eager uh, to, he to hear uh, how this conversation evolves over the course of this episode, because um, I think we'll kind of return to some of these ideas later in some of the other films that we, that we talk about. Um, but just Dunye pointing to uh, limited opportunities for Black queer film filmmakers and stories. It's like she's pointing to white directors like Todd Haynes. Um, I also know that uh, Gus Van Sant is part of this um, new queer cinema movement, uh, but that there didn't seem to gen generate much support and momentum for uh, Black filmmakers. But then she points out to uh, Dee Reese. Um, and so, yeah, and again, as I said, uh, what I want to learn more about and know more about is how have opportunities for Black queer directors changed uh, in the last four years? Uh, what has changed? What hasn't? And so uh, I know I'll be doing more research um, and, um, and I'm sure we'll uh, talk a little bit about this as we, as we advance in our discussions today. Last notes is this movie was made on a budget of $300,000 uh, and financed by a $30,000 uh, National Endowment for the Arts grant. However, uh, a Michigan uh, lawmaker threatened to pull the grant uh, after seeing the sex scene be between Cheryl and Diana, um, objecting to taxpayer support of such art. So it's like, even when grants are endowed to projects like these, thinking about what challenges, impediments, and bullshit directors would have to, uh, like Dunier had to deal with to get projects like this made. Um, and how many people got like movies funded with straight sex scenes that were like, it wasn't a problem, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, just this movie was really, really interesting to watch, uh, and really interesting to research. Um, Dunye later made more work like uh, indie films like Black, uh, Black is Blue, The Owls, and a film produced by HBO uh, called A Stranger, in, or Stranger Inside, which is about um, experiences in a uh, female prison and, or a women's prison, and which is interesting. It's a, from 2001, and she talks about um, kind of limits in control behind the scenes for shows like Orange is the New Black, depicting experience, like experiences uh, within women's prisons. But, um, you know, 2001, she was trying to show those, like create those narratives and show those experiences. Um, that was a whirlwind. I want to know what you guys thought. <laughs> what you think of Watermelon Woman? <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I never heard of it until you brought it to our attention, Christine. Um, and as a lifelong Philadelphian, it was really awesome, as you brought up to see Philadelphia in the 90s. Um, 
skyscrapers, different street corners. Um, so that was like really cool to see and to support a movie by uh, someone who went to Temple also, yeah. um, which is cool. Uh, I really, what stuck out to me, we talked about kind of are the, ar- the archival footage, but her relationship with her friend Tamara and then kind of how um, this woman, Diana, who's this white woman who comes into her life, her and Cheryl start dating and hooking up. We talked about sex scene a little. And I think Cheryl and Tamara's relationship and how Diana kind of interferes with that, um, I think it was just really fascinating to watch too. I thought those two, Valerie Walker played Tamara, I thought they had such great chemistry together uh, working at this film shop uh, or this um, like blockbuster video rental type a of VHS is all the way. <laughs> this would also be a great pick for 90s month. And she's like a total movie nerd too. Like when Diana first comes to the shop and she's like recommending stuff and she's like, oh, Carrie or Repulsion and all this stuff. And I was like, oh man, she's like, just like listing all these like really cool, like creepy horror movies and stuff. Um, but yeah, I thought the rela- the interracial relationship was interesting. And I also know that's partly because like Faye had like a relationship like with a white woman. So it's like interesting that she's trying to like align these two stories together um but yeah like the relationship with her friend was interesting too because it's just like you know there's so there's like so many struggles with people you know just like being queer in general and then also like the stigmas with like interracial couples and stuff so it was just like really laying it on and it was interesting how that like potentially like strained like a friendship too um which you know, stuff like I have never dealt with and have not experienced so it was just like interesting to see like how like how they went about dealing with like her in this new relationship and stuff. Yeah, I guess um, I would add that. Yeah, if if, um, if what we've discussed so far hasn't piqued your interest in this movie, uh, which it should, because it's it's really you know it's a really unique perspective uh, as far as narrative and as far as a, a filmmaker's sort of mission behind a film. Um, but also just because it's. It, in terms of its technical and aesthetic aspects is a, a stellar film. Um, it's, you know, as we discussed, it's very low budget, um, but in a way that completely suits the film uh, and, and enhances the intimacy of its story. Um, it makes it feel very, very lived in. Um, and it doesn't do anything to compromise. It, it's like cinematic stature or it's, it's range. Um, it really, it really does a lot with a very, very limited budget. Um, well, and while that is in and of itself impressive enough, to, uh, to also be a visually beautiful film, um, with, with such an intimate and unique narrative, uh, really made it a knockout for me. So I, I love this movie. I thought it was really great. Yeah, I, I loved it a lot too. And the roommate I watched it with, she was like, okay, I'm going to go upstairs. And I put the movie on and she didn't move because it was <laughs> so interesting. But Christina, I'm so glad that you spent some time talking about the relationship between Cheryl and Diana because, you know, for me, there felt like a really big distinction between Cheryl and Diana and like Faye and um, her partner um, because it felt like Diana and and... I don't know if they came out right out and said this, but it felt like Diana with Cheryl was just like part of a pattern. And like Diana was like, and this might be just me, like me reading too much into it, but like fetishizing having partners of color. Um, And honestly, like just black partners, because that's all that they've really described. And so like, to me, it felt like there was sort of a a significant difference there. 
Um, but I don't know if that's like something I'm reading too much into or if it was meant to be like that. I felt like I noticed that too. And then I thought it was also interesting because with Faye and the director she was supposedly seeing, when they talked to Faye's partner that she had like grown old with, she makes it sound like that relationship was like kind of toxic. And there was like, because there was like a power dynamic, like that affected the relationship too. Cause she was this like affluent white woman who was like making movies. And Faye was like the person she cast in these like, potentially problematic roles and stuff and so it was like just all very interesting also talking about like that aspect and so like maybe that wasn't necessarily like a healthy relationship even though it was like interesting and like an early like interracial like lesbian couple and stuff like it may not have been like on the best terms um which I thought adding that level was was pretty interesting to hear from like her partner yeah I think um the interesting mirroring of what was going on in Cheryl's life as she was making the documentary and things that were revealed through Faye's life um, were just uh, created a really uh, interesting and playful kind of narrative too. I found this movie, yeah, uh, so also inspiring as an artist uh, and like, uh, watching a filmmaker talk about like create a film about the creation of this project um and yeah watching Cheryl play herself um so yes that was watermelon woman I highly recommend it um I think there are clips on YouTube but I I watched it on Criterion um but I think there are other ways you can find it as well. So thanks guys. Yeah. yeah. Thanks Christine for bringing it to, I, I think it's actually free on Amazon prime right now. Okay. <clears throat> oh, I watched it. So up next, I'll do the, uh, <laughs> the segue up next. We have Sam. Yeah. All right. So I am so excited to bring to you the movie that I've chosen, which apologies. I feel like I'm really rusty at this right now. Um, so <laughs> the movie that I picked for everyone is Black Klansman, um, directed by Spike Lee, came out in 2018. That was a weird way to say that. 2018. No, I guess not. Whatever. Anyway, um, instead of me telling you what this movie is about, I thought it would be better for us to hear from the person um, who it's about. So uh, the movie, the book, Black Klansman, um, all based on a memoir written by Ron Stallworth. So I'd love for us to actually listen to Ron Stallworth. Um, I think for us, the, the five of us here, I would love for you guys to see him as he's talking. So I am going to share my screen. Apologies for those of you who are listening. I can like link this video in the um, social media post we put out. But um, let me, first of all, get it up. So this is real life Ron Stallworth. I'm Sergeant Ron Stallworth, retired. When I was the detective at the Colorado Springs Police Department in 1978, I launched a uh, investigation into the Ku Klux Klan, a chapter that was forming and uh, trying to expand in my city. I launched it based on uh, seeing a one ad in the classified section of the newspaper, and there was a P.O. box number. I wrote uh, a note, a letter, if you will, to that P.O. box. I uh, basically said, I hate uh, nigger spicks, chinks, Jews, Japs, and anybody else who isn't pure Aryan white like me. And I wanted to uh, 
doing something that would allow me to uh, uh, direct my attention towards that. About a week, two weeks later, I get a phone call in my office. The voice on the end of the phone said, uh, hi, this is Ken O'Dell. I'm the local chapter president of the Colorado Springs Ku Klux Klan. His response to me was, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? That's when I said, oh, hell, what do I do now? I immediately formulated a strategy, and it was simply to get a white officer posing as me to go meet this guy. Chuck is not his real name. I knew Chuck well. He was a good undercover officer, and so I chose him. When I set off to do this, it was simply to gather information on the Klan, who they are, what they are, where they are, how many they are, and take it from there. Chuck, his lieutenant said, this will never work because Chuck will walk into the meetings and they'll immediately recognize from his voice that he's not black. I said to the lieutenant, what does a black man sound like? And then he said, you know, shucking and jiving and saying mother blank blank. I said, I can shuck and jive if I have to, but B, I can speak correct English when I need to. When I needed a physical body to attend a Klan meeting, I would go tell him, I, uh, we need you for this. Most of these guys carried guns, and uh, Chuck would go into situations knowing that these people were armed, and uh, they're unpredictable. David Duke was the national director slash grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. I called him up one day to find out where my uh, membership card was, because he was supposed to get it within two weeks of applying. On this particular day, David Duke happened to be there, picked the phone up. What can I do you for? He told me that uh, there had been a uh, administrative snafu, and he personally would uh, process the membership and send my card to me. I actually have the card in my wallet. I've carried that card in my wallet since I got it in January of 1979. And I also have a certificate of mem uh, membership to the Ku Klux Klan, both the documents signed, prepared for and signed by David Duke during the seven and a half months of the undercover phase. The results were we prevented three cross burnings. Cross burning is a domestic act of terrorism. It's been classified as such. So we prevented three of those in Colorado Springs. No one ever had to wake up and be terrorized seeing a burning cross in the distance. We also learned of two military personnel working at North American Air Defense Command, NORAD, who had top security clearance. They manned the console that monitored North American airspace. We uncovered two members of the Klan who had that job. I was invited into NORAD, met the deputy uh, commander, and uh, based on the information I provided to him, he contacted the Pentagon talked to some general there, and that general ordered him to order those two men off uh, NORAD and to reassign him. I was told that they were going to, quote unquote, the North Pole. So I'm going to end it there. Um, that's the movie. <laughs> that is the whole thing in um, less than five minutes. And so I think that it kind of speaks volumes to how much Spike Lee respected Ron Stallworth, the fact that, um, you know, the obviously you have to like dramatize some things a little bit. You have to fudge some details, but how true he tried to stay to that story that it was like there, right there. Um, so this episode is supposed to be about black directors and I had every intention on really focusing on Spike Lee. So I have a little bit of information here, but really I just was so captivated by Ron Stallworth. Like every time I thought about him and I thought about this story, I, I could not get around some of the things that the movie discusses and brings up. So um, 
I'm going to hit you with Spike Lee first, and then we'll get into kind of the, the meat of the movie. So I said this was directed, came out um, 2018. So Spike Lee's first feature film, She's Gotta Have It, came out in 1986. It was made on a budget of $175,000, which is like peanuts, really. And it was filmed over a two-week period. It ended up grossing over uh, excuse me, $7 million. That's a lot of money, um, especially for a first feature film like that. So um Therefore, next film, 1989's Do the Right Thing, uh, which earned him an Academy Award nomination in the Best Original Screenplay category, though most people in the controversy is believe that he should have been nominated for and won Best Director. Um, I know of Spike Lee because of Malcolm X, came out in 1992, starring Denzel Washington. Um, the, fil- the film is incredible, and it's actually been preserved in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. So, like, it means business, and it's really, really good. Um, Spike Lee has been nominated for Oscars many times throughout his career. Um, he was nominated for Best Document uh, Documentary for Four Little Girls in 1997, which is about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. And then, of course, um, Black Klansman brought the movie and brought Spike Lee a slew of nominations as well, including Best Director, um, though he didn't win for that. Instead, he won for Best Adapted Screenplay, which... Um, you know, we can get into later if we want of how that is still just like more racism and just appeasing the critics. But um, regardless, it's still an incredible accomplishment to win an Academy Award. So like credit where credit is due. Um, Black Klansman had a budget of $15 million and grossed worldwide about 93 93, 94 million. So it really blew expectations out of the water. They really thought it was going to make about like 10 million, maybe 15 million. So obviously it did a lot better than they thought. The film stars um, John David Washington, Denzel Washington's son, as Ron Stallworth. Um, I didn't know that. And as I was watching the movie, I'm like, that voice, man, that voice sounds familiar. And then I was like, mind blown. Um, Along with Adam Driver, Laura Harrier, and Topher Grace as David Duke, which I at first thought it was a really weird casting, but in seeing that video with Ron Stallworth, I was like, holy shit, just like David Duke. (laughs) Um, So in preparation for this uh, episode, Tori had sent out a few questions. Um, What did this movie make me think about? Um, what did I want to learn about? I changed it to what did I learn, but what do I want to learn? And then what's something I had never thought about um, that this movie brought up. So um, when it comes to what this movie made me think about, focusing like really on Ron and his journey. So um, I wrote here in my notes that I find the whole movie fascinating, but really Ron's journey as a black man and as a member of the police force, I find fascinating and have tons of questions about, Um, especially in such a a small confines of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, The movie doesn't really explore Ron's life before joining the police department. You hear a little bit about he went to college, not in Vietnam, um, but nothing outside of that. And we are able to see moments of Ron's ignorance. And I say that in air quotes because it's not in any malicious intent, just not knowing. And then also his radicalization. Um, I think that the plot of Black Klansmen is, of course, about a black man infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan, but there's a lot more going on than just that. Before I get too deep into that, I'd love to hear what you folks thought about the movie. Anyone's first time seeing it? It was my first time. Yeah. 
Okay. So, um, okay. So Connor, you had seen it before. Um, anything new you discovered watching it again? Just how awesome the story is. Like just story-wise what, um, and you heard it in the interview, just, it just feels like it's not real. Like, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Um, and so I just think really the performances, um, I think just really hammered home for me. And this was just, I watched it about a year ago. Um, and so revisiting it, this was a really great rewatch, especially thinking about all these other films also that we're talking about today. All right. Thanks, Connor. Um, how about folks who saw it for the first time? Thoughts? I watched this movie and Inside Man, like kind of around the same time. Have you all seen Inside Man? It's also uh, Spike Lee, Denzel Washington plays a member of the police force. And so it was kind of interesting, more than just sort of acting, weird acting connections um, within the Denzel or within the Washington family. But um yeah, I, I think it got me kind of interested in what the fact that I, two movies focusing on police, also focusing on elements of racism within police forces and, and uh, how black cops navigate the they're very different stories but navigate these situations and environments um i thought black klansman like stylist like was really stylized and and really fun to watch uh in that way and inside man is more of kind of like a straightforward thriller um but it was just interesting watching those two movies in conversation with one another especially um yeah, in relation to focusing on on the experiences of, of black cops. Thanks, Christine. I actually like totally forgot about that movie and that Denzel Washington was in it. So like, yes, of course, um, that comparison is so fascinating. Um, Tori, Dave, any thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, first off, like I, this is the first thing I've seen John David Washington in and he was fantastic. I keep seeing the 10A trailer. Uh, and every time I see it, I'm like, this man is like so striking, but because it's a Christopher Nolan movie, everyone's like cold and dead inside. Um, and so like actually watching, (laughs) um, Black Klansman, I was like, oh God, like this guy has so much range and he like is very serious at times, but like even just like when he's goofing around like on the phone and stuff, I was like, man, this is like, he's a fantastic actor and I like can't wait to see him in more stuff. Um, But one thing this brought up for me is like some of the history I'm still undoing because I like never learned anything different in like my proper history education in school. But it's like one of those things where as a kid, like, you learn when you learned about like um, civil rights movement, essentially you learned that Martin Luther King was good and all the people peacefully protesting were good. And Malcolm X and the black Panthers were terrorists. And that's like something that like has never been like formally undone in my education, even though I know that's not true. And so something for me is that like, there's still so much more about the Black Panther movement that I don't really know. And I want to learn more about because I like, I know that that's not true. And it's just crazy to me that that 
is like probably still a narrative in like schools today. Um, so that's like something that came up for me a lot. Totally. I mean, I remember the way my mom talked to me about Angela Davis back in the day. Yeah. And like, no way. Like, I would never think those things as a human being, as an adult right now. But, you know, that's still such a, like, a in, ingrained in me. So it's yeah. a lot of unlearning and undoing. Yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed the film. Um, uh, been watching Spike's movies for a long time. Um, one of the ones that uh, jumped to my mind right away as we were kind of rolling out the idea to explore this theme uh, would have been Do the Right Thing. Um, it's one of my favorites. Um, and, uh, I think it's an interesting, this is an interesting one in, in the sense that, uh, a lot of his other films are really focused on, um, a black community experience and really, really insert you into uh, a community at large of people of color. Uh, whereas this was, uh, though, though it does explore that a bit, uh, was, uh, more, rooted in kind of a critique and observation of um, institutional, functional institutional racism in the way that that works. Um, that being said, I, I almost feel like it maybe, I don't know, I, 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 it's a strange thing to say of a movie where there are this many you know, racist slurs and so on, but it does feel as though it, it in a way, pulled his punches a little bit in terms of police thing, uh, in terms of making a police force seem very sympathetic toward, um, toward his cause and, and everything like that. And I understand, you know, obviously they were, they met some obstacles from the top brass of that department. And there was a police officer within the ranks, uh, that he was working with that was, uh, vocally racist and abusive of people of color. But, uh, I don't know. It was, it's just, it's interesting to see him approach systemic racism's intersectionality with policing, mm-hmm. um, while still making such an effort to kind of extend an olive branch to these characters and make them a subversion of that. So I, I found it interesting. And again, I don't, I don't think these are problems with the movie, but it does make it stand out within his catalog in a way that I found interesting. I don't know. I, I don't know another way to put it, really, other than that it's just it's a very unique approach for him as far as as far as filmmaking, uh, especially from a director who can at times be really really confrontational, um, so in in that regard, I, I, I walked away feeling like I, I did enjoy it, but less, perhaps maybe less impacted than some of his other films, which focus more on systemic uh, and institutional racism's impact on black communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It was it's definitely good. I would highly recommend it, but. Um, there are just other films of his that uh, that for me are such like jaw dropping home runs that uh, this one this one I thought was really good but um, I I would also recommend his other films as well. Yeah, Dave, I'm so glad that you point that out because I remember the first time I was watching this and something about it felt really uncomfortable um, in the sense of like how positive I was feeling <laughs> about a police force and mm-hmm. like how. Um, supportive his his relationship with other um, detectives and other officers were and how it like evolved over time. And it made me think, and full transparency, I haven't read Ron Stallworth's memoir. Um, Better by, yeah. It, it makes me wonder, was that his experience? Mm. I don't know. I, I can't mm. speak to that. Um, and so, 
you, like, I wonder if Spike Lee, like, took that into consideration. Like, yes, there's, like, a larger narrative to be had here. But if you're telling one man's story, like, how much can you diverge from um, what his experience was? I could be totally wrong with this. And he could have talked at length about the racism he, like, like went through and experienced with even, like... Um, this isn't the this isn't the person's real name, but Flip Zimmerman. Like even even with that, they could have talked about. So um, this take this with a grain of salt as someone who's not read it. Sure, same, yeah, and uh, that's another thing too. That I mean, to his credit, it, it is he is working with a police a white police officer who is Jewish, um, who of course the Klan would have had just as much of a problem with. So in that sense, it, it does. And I, I, again, I don't know whether or not that's that's accurate to the history of what the film's depicting, but, um, as either way, as a, as a component of the script, it does, it does make sense. Um, I just think that, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a very loaded movie. There's a lot, there's a lot to pack with it. Yeah. It seems like the girlfriend character is like the one that like they try to use to have those conversations where they're like, yeah. where she's like part of the black Panther party. And she's kind of like, when she finds out he's a cop, she's like, well, you can't like actually change this broken system. And he's like, no, but I think I can, like I'm working from the inside. And she's just like, yeah, that's like not how that works. Like everything just needs to be dismantled, which like is just interesting given the time we're at right now as a country and how we're very seriously having these conversations about like defunding the police and everything. But like, yeah, I also had like, I, I was dealing with that a lot too. And, you know, whenever I watch anything with the cops in it now, it feels weird. Cause I'm like, I, I, you know, all cops are bastards. So like, yeah, a cab, yeah. like definitely <laughs> fuck the 12th, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there, yeah. And that's another thing that too, that like this movie trades in interestingly, because uh, there's, you know, it, it's not a new idea, but it's, it's gained a lot of modern traction recently. This, that there can be no good cops within a racist system. And if this is portraying a system that, was at the time, you know, the, the nation itself was, well, uh, is is at the height of a different different brand of institutional racism. Let's say um, handles it in a, in a way that does make you sympathize with those characters. It really it, it created a weird dissonance for me that I it wasn't to me a stumbling block for the film, but something that did feel strange within his catalog. And uh, uh, Boots Riley was making these criticisms of Black Klansmen when it came out, Boots Riley having done Sorry to Bother You. Um, and so even before um, recent protests um, and calls to defund and abolish the police um, and highlighting racist systems within the police force or that is the police force, um, you have Black directors like Boots Riley calling attention to a narrative that's presented in Black Klansmen. But it's also interesting, I didn't really think about this until we were just, you all were just talking, in the similarities uh, to Sorry to Bother You, uh, where you have a main Black character code switching and, and pretending to be a white guy on mm -hmm. the phone, um, which, yeah, I hadn't really put that together. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see these two, co these two films in conversation. To your point, to... Uh, Dave, sorry to bother you, has sort of more of this narrative around co um, collective action and organizing and to to kind of rise above and, and Black Klansmen. Um, and it focuses more on sort of, although I feel like there's certainly also elements of, of 
collaboration and and organizing to and the this that most intense scene that um, is the I think I can't I, I don't remember what it was like a gathering or a rally inside of the house towards the end the climactic scene when they're watching Birth of a Nation and they're like reciting the lines line for line it was like right after their initiation. Is it, oh my gosh, it's been a month since I've seen this. I can't remember. It's when um, the wife of the clan's member is going to plant the bomb while, um, is it like some like black organizing effort and, and speech is happening in another, who are they listening to? Who's played by, I think. Um, oh, the speaker. So those two scenes, uh, in contrast, cutting back between um, the really intense... Yeah, it was, it was uh, the telling of the murder. I just brought those two scenes up to... to those scenes really stuck, stood yeah. out to me um, as, as sort of the emotional and uh, sort of story climax of that, of that movie. Um, well, you have like, yeah, you have like them listening to him speak about this horrible thing and it's all like mourning and learning and like coming together in like a loving way. And then all of these like Ku Klux Klan members bonding just purely on hate and misinformation. And again, very timely for the moment, but yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, Jesse Washington, by the way, okay. um, the lynching of Jesse Washington. Um, there, there, there are so many things that I could talk about with this movie, honestly, but um, there are some things that I don't feel comfortable talking about because as like a white woman, I like, I can't really speak to his code switching. I, I can't really speak to some of these other things. And so something that I thought that we've kind of been talking about and like kind of skirting the edges of is like specifically his relationship. So Ron's relationship with Patrice. Um, I found that so, so compelling because it's, it's literally um, the tension between identity and priority. Um, so, you know, Patrice, a black woman, Ron, a black man. Um, Ron is he's infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan. He's um, partnering with a white person to do that. He's doing all of these things. Whereas, um, you know, Patrice is very much like involved in the Black Panthers. Um, she's the one who brought Kwame Ture to talk to the Black Student Union. Um, she's the one who's organizing all of this. And she becomes a target because of how mm -hmm. involved she is. And in the, the climactic moment where she finds out that Ron is a police officer, she's like, you're a pig. And I, ca I can't believe that. And so like, I really appreciated seeing that because it is so complicated and Ron is not the only black police officer that exists in the world. And it really made me think about this like consistent and really complex tension. And, and something that I love that um, we get to see in the movie is like Ron become a little bit more radicalized. So he sees Kwame Ture and like that scene is incredible. Like the cinematography of that scene is just like, it's so powerful. It like brings tears to my eyes every time I watch it. But um, 
you you see Ron go through something so physical, all of these emotions on his face, and he ends up going up to Kwame Ture and being like, like, do you think like a like the race war is going to happen? And and he's and Kwame Ture is like, yeah. And um, afterwards, and when he's talking to when Ron is talking to his like white superiors, he makes a point to correct them when they call him Stokely Carmichael. He's like, you mean Kwame Ture? And so like. I I really appreciated seeing his growth there and yet how he still was able to like have this like positive relationship with the police and be a part of the police enforcement. And um, I just I, I just think that that's so interesting and um, I have that as what I want to learn. Um, how do these tensions between identity and priority play out for other folks, other black folks who work in the police enforcement? Um, but honestly, like, I don't want to keep it so limited to the police enforcement because um, that's not the only institution that, you know, is racist, suffers from systematic and systemic racism. Um, so what does that look like? And, um, you know, I, I, I said this to some folks earlier today, but like I wrote down community solutions for police. Like who is the community? Who's responsible for this? Um, all of these things that I want to learn and do more about. Um, I have been like reading the literature on like defund the police and like what people are suggesting in place of the police. And so like I would encourage our listeners to do that research too. I don't know everything about it. I'm still actively doing that. Um, And I would like say that I don't know as much as I should. um, So I can't like really speak to that. Um, But anything else about the movie in particular you want to talk about? I have one more thing that I thought was kind of, Fun and interesting. I think the movie, and this is something that you know has really stuck with me, is how it ends. Not the like plot ending, but afterward. And you, Sam, you put here in your notes uh, that it was theatrically released in the U.S. on August tenth, twenty eighteen, a day before the first anniversary of the Unite to Write rally in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. And so I thought, for me, that felt like a really like rock solid ending to like really. So say like this stuff is like as Tori you brought up like this stuff's not over like these things are still continuing um, and they're still and David Duke is still you know still alive today still doing kind of the same things that he was doing when you know the story took place so I, I guess I was just also curious what folks thought of that him choosing to end on that moment you know those those clips. I mean, I think it was really intentional. It's a bookend, right? So the movie begins with like a really almost kind of bizarre, but um, you're watching Alec Baldwin. Oh my God, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> I know, right? Um, Ken Brew, Kenneth Brew or whatever, Beauregard, right? <laughs> what a name. But you're watching him create the propaganda we still hear today. But of course, it's like totally dated for that time period. And then to end with something that is identical to what we heard coming out at that time was so poignant and purposeful. I really appreciated that. Yeah. Other thoughts? Agreed. That dolly shot, I, I I'd literally just looked this up. I don't know what that term actually means. I'm assuming that's what it is. Where oh, the hallway? It's, yeah, it's yeah. Um, Ron and, Pr- and Patrice um, like going down the, the corridor um, and then that I think that's like the ending and then it cuts to like burning cross and then cuts to the Charlottesville 
footage, um, which like was such like an intense and jarring ending, but that, that shot sort of like forward momentum is almost to like suggest, okay, this is a story set in the seventies, but I'm propelling you to the like present and really putting, putting this the forefront of your brain as far as all the things that are talked about in this movie are exactly what is going on right now and are still being talked about right now. Yeah, that was a really brilliant thing you just mentioned, Christine. And um, I kind of didn't make that connection, so I'm glad that you did for me. Um, Talking about the burning cross, I, listening to that interview with the real Ron Stallworth, I was like, oh yeah, they did stop all of that. And yeah, they did find the identity of those people. Because that honestly wasn't the point of the movie. The point of the movie is like these relationships and like um, Ron Stallworth being the first black man in the Colorado Springs Police Department. So uh, it just reminded me like, oh yeah, like they actually did some really cool shit and like did some important shit. Um, Anything else about the movie? I want to wrap up with like one last thing. So my last thing, Tori, to your question, what's something I've never thought about that this movie brought up? it could have been a thousand different things, but I picked something very small. Um, I think it's subtle uh, to me as a white person, um, the subtle ways that Hollywood continues to promote white supremacy um, through music choices and allowing music choices to denote history. So um, I rewatched Black Klansman the same weekend I watched Kong Skull Island. Um, Watch Black Klansman, don't watch Skull Island. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so both of these movies are set in the 1970s. You can tell like through the clothes and through the music. Um, During Skull Island, a roommate turned to the the room and was like, um, during, I can't remember what song it was. I think it was like, a Black Sabbath song, and they're like, oh, one of the four songs that talks about it's the 70s, that's how you know it's the 70s, and then the movie literally, and then we talked about what the other songs were, and the movie proceeded to play those three other songs, and I was just like, oh, yeah, well, how generic, that just goes to show you how shitty this movie was, but watching Black Klansman, um, none of those songs were anywhere near the soundtrack. And instead, like you got these like incredible and really rich songs. And um, for me, it just showed like different history can be made through even like small choices, like music. Um, And music is obviously not like a small choice, right? Like it can be a really big thing, makes a break movie. Um, But that for me was just kind of like an an eye-opening experience. Good point. I do love Sabbath, but you are right. Yes. No, like, Ron, like I love CCR, don't get me wrong. Um, I even wrote, like, I, I did look up the soundtrack. They have, like, Bowie in there, and I lo- like, don't get me wrong. I love that, but, um, you know, I'm a white person. Who you're right, you're right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that's my thought about Black Klansmen. Please go watch it. Let me know what you think about it, and I'd love to have a conversation about it. Um, any thoughts before I throw it over to, all right, so go ahead, Connor, next up. Um, thank you, Sam, Christine, for talking about, uh, really thoughtfully about these films. Uh, and you guys have given me so many great transitions to talking about my pick, Moonlight. Uh, Moonlight came out in 2016, written and directed by Barry Jenkins. It was adapted from a play called In the Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue by Terrell Alvin uh, McCraney and that play went unpublished. Uh, McCraney would go on to help, you know, work with Jenkins as um, he was working on the script. 
Um, I picked Moonlight because this is a film that has been sitting on my Netflix queue for about three years. Uh, it's a movie that I just was like, oh, I heard it's really good. I really wanted to see it, added it, never watched it. Uh, Sorry to Bother You is the same way as well. That's been sitting on my Netflix, on my Hulu list forever. Really good. You should watch it. It's really it. good. It's really good. <laughs> I really need to see it. And I think this was a way for me to challenge and... Um, I think Sam, you brought up earlier trying to like learn more and we, you know, we've all been talking about growing in our understanding um, for me to try to break away from my like safe or like traditional picks. Uh, Cause we've been doing this for almost two years now. So I feel like we all kind of have a good guess of when we pick a theme, guessing what film each of us um, are going to pick. So I think this is a really good way to kind of start my process of challenging what I watch. Uh, and nothing's wrong with watching something that's comforting or something that you know you're going to like, but that shouldn't be the only thing. Um, that you're consuming because then you'll never learn or grow that way. Um, For me, I first heard of Moonlight during the Oscar controversy when it was announced that um, La La Land was going to win Best Picture and everybody was about to like freak out, but it turns out, I forget who read the card wrong. Um, Was it Warren Beatty? Warren Beatty? Yeah, and Faye Dunaway. And Faye Dunaway. Uh, Um, Did anyone watch this in real time? No. No. I'm ashamed to say that I did. It's like crazy. Um, so earlier that night, uh, Mahershala Ali, who plays Juan in the film, uh, won Best Supporting Actor. And he was also the first um, Muslim to win Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars. Um, and Barry Jenkins won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. And so it got down to the last one. It was going to be La La Land or Moonlight. And then it was real La La Land. And everyone was like, oh, of course, they gave it to the white musical cast um, over this really moving um, coming of age story. Uh, but it turns out it actually did go to Moonlight. They like had to hand the Oscar on stage over to Barry Jenkins. Um, it was pretty hilarious. And so that's kind of the last I thought about Moonlight until I saw it on Netflix, added it, and then hadn't really thought about it a whole lot until we talked about doing this episode. And I'm really glad that I picked this movie because this is has become one of my favorite movies. Um, how it's shot, how it's scored, how it's acted. Um, it's just a really beautiful, moving movie, and I just have a little um, plot synopsis here. Um, Moonlight is a look at three defining chapters in the life of Chiron, a young black man growing up in Miami. Uh, we see when he's a child, when he's, it looks like, I forget if they say an exact year, but it looks like eighth grade, ninth grade, you know, like middle school, early high school, uh, and finally as an adult. Uh, we see him growing up uh, in a poor neighborhood in Miami, and in an interview that I'm going to play in a little bit in a different part of it, um, Jenkins talked about how he and uh, McCraney, they actually grew up in the same neighborhood. They went to the same school, but they never knew each other. They never met each other, never interacted. Uh, And so he described it um, uh, growing up in a beautiful neighborhood where dark things happened. Um, And I think that's a really great kind of one sense explanation of um, at least the first two thirds of this movie. Um, Moonlight had a reported budget of 1.5 to $4 million and had a box office of $65.3 million. Um, so definitely a commercial success, uh, definitely low budget, like the watermelon woman. Um, and Christine, you asked four years later after that interview, what, and this came out in 2016. So kind of like since watermelon woman, um, I think it's awesome that a story about a, um, gay black man growing up in Miami won best picture. Um, so I feel like at least as far as if we care about awards and the Academy, some progress is being made. You can go listen to our Academy episode from last February. Um, if you want to hear a shit on the Academy and how racist and white it is. Uh, but once in a while, some good decisions are made. Um, and I was just kind of taking some notes as we were going through the episode, but the idea of uh, community 
I think really stuck out with me. Uh, and there was one description of the plot that I really didn't, I don't know, didn't think fit, but it was his epic journey to manhood is guided by kindness, support, and love of the community that helps raise him. I think that kind of misses the mark of what the movie's about. Yeah. Um, so I would be very curious. That was like, I just typed like Moonlight and then that was like under the Rotten Tomatoes score. That was the description that popped up. And I was like, did that person actually see the movie? Because while it is about the community that helps raise him, not everybody in that community has um, his best interest at heart. That um, reviewer watched the little part. Yeah, right? That was it. That was it. Yeah, the first chapter is called Little, and it shows um, Chiron um, kind of... The the film opens with Mahershala Ali. He's pulling up to a corner. Drugs are being sold. uh, And then he sees young Chiron running from kids who are calling him the horrible F-word. Running away, he's hiding in this just like bombed-out-looking house. Um, and then Mahershala Ali comes in and invites him over to stay to have dinner um, with him and his partner, Teresa. Uh, and so the first act of the film follows Mahershala Ali, Chiron, Teresa, um, all kind of learning to get to know each other. We see uh, Juan interact with um, Chiron's mother, and she's the only um, actor to appear in all three parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of see, she kind of has her own little uh, mini arc from a hardworking single mother to a mother who um, is dealing with a really bad drug addiction. And then at the end, a mother who's trying to uh, find redemption through, it looks like she's living in a rehab center and assisting there um, and through trying to rebuild her relationship with um, Chiron. Uh, but before we go on, I wanted to turn it over to you guys. Uh, who saw this movie before or, you know, for the first time for this recording? I did so we all did um so what are kind of your guys just kind of initial thoughts seeing it pretty recently on moonlight i loved it so much like it like i i texted you guys while i was like it was towards the end but um the the diner scene like i was just like grinning from ear to ear but um no i mean it was like so well acted and there's like a lot of hard parts in it that are like difficult to get through and watch. Um, not necessarily for the reasons I like expected, but, um, but there's like so many moments of just like beautiful tenderness that I like was overwhelmed like several times during the movie. Um, especially in, um, the, the third chapter is called black. And so for when he's an adult and going by black, like it's his story and, his conversations with his mother and, um, oh, what's the, what's the old friend's name? Kevin. Kevin. Um, just all of that was so, so moving. And yeah, I, I'm like blown away by that movie. It was so good. The scene when, um, Sharon is swimming with, um, the character that Mahershala Ali plays, Juan. uh, Juan, uh, is just so, beautiful so beautifully shot like the camera like right at the water level like just mm, so beautiful I mean that is just one example of how like how beautifully that movie is is shot um and communicates that uh what you talked about Tori that tenderness um so so well the scene between um Sharon and Juan when they're at the um, 
the dining table and Chiron is like finally confronting Juan about a couple things like, do you sell drugs? Um, does my mom take drugs? Am I this? How do I know? I was like, like knocked off my feet with that scene because like I, how real it was and Mahershala's performance in that, like you could like see his heartbreak. I just was like, oh yeah, definitely. Yep. You get the award. You do it. You do it. Because that was incredible. And how easy it would be to like lie to a kid in that situation. Like I realized in that scene, how much I love moments where people are just very honest with kids because like kids can handle a lot of shit. And like, there was no bullshitting. He just was like, said everything straight out. And I thought like handled it very well. And yeah, you're right. Like he's only in the first part of the movie, but like he fucking deserves that Oscar so much. Yeah. And you feel, I was shocked when I, he was only in the first third. Cause I assumed that he'd be a most of it. He won this huge award. You know, he's an amazing actor. Um, but you really, and upon thinking about the movie after watching it, you really feel the hole that he's left in his life. Um, with his absence, uh, especially in that second part. Um, so I think that even just speaks volumes about how awesome he was in what's probably 15 minutes of screen time. Yeah. Maybe 20. Um, and for the rest of the hour, plus how that you just feel that lack of presence. But you also, I feel like there is an interesting choice to just have this really important character appear under half of the movie because I think you do also see how Juan's character shaped Chiron as well um, and was such an important person in his life. And, you know, you think about people in childhood who you might not still keep in touch with or might not be around, but the, the, the impact that they have. Um, so it is an interesting choice to just have a really important character be like, they're here and now they're not. And let's see how the, like this character develops um, and interacts with other people. And also to like not make his death a major plot point. I thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting choice. Agreed. I thought I was going to see like a tragic flashback or something. And I actually appreciate that I didn't see that. Um, yeah. yeah and, oh, sorry, Dave, go ahead. No, that's just something I was going to say as well. It's like this movie has <clears throat> all the, um, it has all the unfortunate trappings of uh, an Oscar bait grief porn film, but totally subverts them. <laughs> because it, it is a difficult story, but it, it's a unique story. Um, and uniquely balanced in, in spite of its trauma with, as you guys have mentioned, tenderness, which is so expertly explored and, and heightened and, and really enhanced by its cinematography and the intimacy that that creates. Um, in addition to just being a generally beautiful looking movie. So there's a lot going on there that um, that I think if this were like a different a, di- a different kind of story uh, that was shot the same way, or if it was um, the same story but shot differently, it wouldn't work. There, there's it, it, it walks a real a real razor's edge and a tenuous balance between <clears throat> what could be uh, a pretty predictable or a pretty cliche kind of film, but all of its elements come together in a way that subvert what you might expect of a film like this. And in that regard, I think it's a huge success. I'm glad you dropped the word unique, uh, because for me, what tore your question, what did this make me think about, uh, was the idea of like specificity. Um, in my like theatrical training in school, um, 
you know, we always talked about when we're creating something be as specific as possible because it's kind of a paradox, but the more specific something is, the more relatable the situation mm-hmm. is. Like I look nothing like Chiron. My experiences are, you know, polar opposites from generally what he experienced, but I feel that struggle um, that he's gr- going through growing up. Um, not fitting at school, kid that's bullying him, the struggles of an adult and kind of wanting to figure out what to do. Um, and so it just, I thought Chiron's story was so incredibly relatable. And I think that's what one element that makes this film a huge success is just how specific um, and exact that the story was told and how relatable Chiron's story is. At least I felt it was for me. I agree. So like wholeheartedly, his relationship with his mother like really mm-hmm. resonated and hit home with me. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I think it also opens a question of like <sighs> intended audience, like how movies are made and what audience in like, is it intended for? And the fact that a movie that, as you said, Connor, focuses on such a specific experience and can speak to that experience while also and and maybe wasn't written with like a white straight audience in mind but that through the telling of that specific story there are um certainly parts of the story that um like I can't relate to but also parts of it that I that um, really speak to uh, larger experiences as well. So there's a, that kind of wonderful play between, um, yeah, universality, but also not, very not, mm-hmm. and intentionally so, to be a re- very specific, um, specific story. And I think for me, the, the timelessness that this movie feels, mm-hmm. um, I think is also really powerful. Uh, Barry Jenkins talks about that uh, with the music a little bit. He kind of helps uh, thought that that kind of helps. I mean, the music's really wonderful throughout the film, uh, but he wanted to apply uh, out um, kind of art house principles of chamber music, but using techniques. And this is something I've never heard of before, but that DJs use called chop and screw uh, to give it a real sense of feeling. So taking something familiar, uh, but really kind of messing it up, grinding it up, making it sound kind of like something different. Um, and then using uh, the Aretha Franklin song, which appears in the beginning and then appears again at the end of the diner. Um, I wasn't even quite sure what decade the film took place in until yeah. the end when you see he has a cell phone. So it's like, okay, probably like 90s at some point. Uh, but technology doesn't play a large part in it. He drives an old car. Um, so I think this movie really has a great opportunity to have a really long lasting staying power um, in cinema culture, partially because it just feels so timeless in that. Uh, the story could have been told 100 years ago and can be told hopefully 100 years in the future. The opening song, too, I only knew because it um, Kendrick Lamar samples it in, like, the first song in, like, Pimp the Butterfly. And that was, like, the only reason I knew it. And I think, like, in that interview, like, he purposely mentioned picking songs like that that, like, have been used as samples by, like, different mm-hmm. rappers and artists and stuff, which I thought was really interesting. Because then I did feel like, oh, I know this stuff for some reason, but, like, didn't couldn't, like, pin why. And that was pretty cool. It feels like trying to remember a dream. Yeah. Uh, and I think just one other note I wanted to hit on, the performance of... I should have had um, his name on here, but of the actor who plays adult Chiron, um, the way that he's able to manifest uh, teenager Chiron 
when he talks to Kevin on the phone because yeah. he has the golden grills. He's like this big buff dude. He was in juvenile, I guess, prison for a number of years. Um, and so he's just this tough macho guy. His name's black. His license plate says black on it. Um, drives this muscle car. And then right when Kevin calls him on the phone, he just like somehow shrinks into this teenager. I feel like for me, that was like whenever I hang out with my high school friends or I don't just, I don't know how he directed that. Barry Jenkins directed that, or I don't know how he achieved that, but just like that, he was able to transform himself into a different actor playing the same character, you know, 10 years younger. That was in the interview you sent us too, which I thought was so interesting because I didn't necessarily think those three actors looked much alike. And then he just said like, Oh, I was like looking for like in their eyes, like that they had this like same soul. And I was like, that's so fascinating because I like, I did feel like they were all like the same person, like just in the like deliveries of like the facial expressions and stuff, because he is such like this quiet, stoic kind of like awkward character, even as an adult, like, you can feel that throughout. And I thought that was just fascinating. Also a shout out to the performance of middle school Terrence, uh, Sharif Earp. Saw him for the first time in this movie uh, and then saw and thought it was a wonderful performance. And then he's in uh, When They See Us. And that performance is like, again, showcasing um, like an amazing performance. Um, so it was really, it was really uh, great to see, um, to see him in some more recent uh, really big projects too. Also, um, Travante Rhodes, he was in Bird Box. Oh my God. Yeah, he was. Oh, that is a movie I cannot endorse. <laughs> I'll never forget when I woke up one morning to get a two paragraph text from Christine about Bird Box that she said the night before. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Um, any other thoughts on Moonlight or um, Barry Jenkins? I, I do have one more thing to say. Um, in the last section, um, when Black is talking to Kevin on the phone and um, they're both talking about their incarcerated experience and um, Kevin's like, yeah, you know, I I got involved in some stuff and I got sent up or whatever, but like they had me cooking and I actually really liked it. I don't know. It was like a gut punch just like hearing that and like knowing all of this and how that experience was almost expected because it like they both had that same experience and it was like clearly something that was experienced in like the the neighborhood that Chiron grew up in too and like just how different that was to to my experience it just you know reminded me of everything that we do and talk about every single day so um just a gut punch to see it like that well and Kevin even saying you know the stuff we always get locked up for I think he says something yeah. like that yeah. too I think the movie really ends and the, I feel like we could have a whole podcast just talking about Kevin and um, Chiron's relationship, friendship, but I love how the movie ends uh, with the two of them holding each other. Yeah. Um, Chiron saying, you know, you're the only guy that's ever really touched me. I haven't really touched anybody else. Yeah. And then I think ending the movie on this really intimate, like platonic intimate moment um, is just not something that you see these two men, just in general, just two men kind of holding each other for the shot of this movie ending, I thought it was like a really powerful way to end the movie. Uh, there's one brief little clip I wanted to play. 
um, from an interview that I sent out. Uh, we'll be linking all these uh, YouTube videos in our podcast description on the uh, Instagram feed and whatnot. Um, so just a brief little clip, just Barry Jenkins talking about his approach to writing this movie. Barry, you made a phenomenal film. Thank it, you. I, after seeing the theater, I was just kind of speechless for a minute, very well, meditative. What is it like to take a script like that that is very mm -hmm. much about coming to terms with your sexuality mm -hmm. and your identity as, as a gay man, a mm -hmm. gay black man? What is that like for you, adapting mm -hmm. it and putting your voice and your, your mindset inside of that story? I'm a straight man who has, I feel like, compassion and empathy. Um, and yet that empathy is passive, you know, unless you're creating things you know, to try to address these issues, to try to, you know, try to find solutions uh, for the mistreatment that, that certain people undergo just for being who they are. I like to say I approach uh, the story from a place of empathy, you know, active empathy. You know, if you're a writer and you're not writing actively about LGBTQ causes, then how much of, a, of, of, of an ally are you? I think that's a really, um, the idea of active empathy um, and how much of an ally can you be if you're not sharing these stories, working on these stories. Um, I just love that moment. I thought that'd be a nice moment to end on. Cool. Well, for the last movie uh, discussion, I'm going to turn it over to Tori, movie number four. Yeah, so it took me a while to like pick something I wanted to do. And I feel like we did a really great job of like picking stuff we hadn't seen before, which is like weird for us too, I yeah. know. But um, I, I think it's been cool to just like use this as like a platform for discovery for all of us. And so um, I decided to do like an older film from 1971 called Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song with several S's uh, in badass. Um, so this uh, was a film that was directed by and also stars uh, Melvin Van Peebles, um, who has like a crazy history. He's, he's written several novels. So he's like a writer, a composer, actor, playwright. Um, he... Um, his son Mario is in the film with him and his son Mario is also a director. He directed a film called New Jack City um, and another film called Panther, which is about like the Black Panthers. So it's also cool that like it's a family of creatives too. Um, but I wanted to pick this movie um, specifically because it's considered like one of the first uh, black exploitation films. Um, and I don't have a lot of experience with like black exploitation films. I don't know, like for the rest of you, if, if you have much experience watching many of these films, Dave, some mostly not. Yeah. Like, watched Shaft for the first time, like a couple months ago. Oh, see, that, yeah. was, a, that was a fun one. Um, I watched yeah. Dolomite is my name with Eddie Murphy on Netflix oh, yeah, earlier this year, yeah, yeah. which is about uh, Rudy Ray Moore. So not a black exploitation film, but about that kind of world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I, I kind of got into this because I, you know, I'm really into horror and I go to a lot of the exhumed films, film events, and they also have like, um, X Fest where they show exploitation films, um, which are sometimes difficult to watch. Uh, a lot of times there's like pretty graphic rape in exploitation films. Um, but I've always like kind of been interested in black exploitation, especially after seeing a documentary called Horror Noir. That's about the history of like black um, horror in the United States. Um, so like, I really wanted to like get outside of my comfort zone and like pick something like this. I am for sure not an expert on black exploitation. For something I wanna learn more about, this I think is it. Um, I think this is like a really interesting, like 
subgenre of like a subgenre. Um, so there's like so much history here and also like a lot of contention, it seems like in how even just like the black community seems to view these films. Um, so as a white woman, I don't really think I can have a proper opinion on like if black exploitation films are like overall like something that's like more positive or negative, but um, in general, they seem to have kind of an interesting history. Um, so I wanted to talk about that briefly before I talk about the movie. Um, so black exploitation kind of came about in the early 70s. Um, the backlash oftentimes was that they thought that this was reinforcing stereotypes and problematic role models like drug dealers and pimps and things of that nature that they didn't really want to be holding up to this high like esteem within these movies. Um, while others thought that these were like great examples of black empowerment as well as movies that were like within the black community, um, which is really what this movie was trying to do when it opens up, it says like starring the black community, which I felt was really like an interesting, powerful way to start off this film. Um, but then of course, as always, uh, Hollywood realized there was money to be made here. Uh, and then kind of takes advantage of that. Um, and it kind of gets pulled away from the black community. Um, and the NAACP even criticized saying that like they started to exploit black communities for money and those communities would never then see this money. Um, so definitely like a lot of interesting like comments and potential issues within this genre. But um, what came up for me while I was like listening to this and Christine, I thought about your movie a lot too when we talked about um, Faye's character is like a, a mammy sort of stereotype, which was common at the time too. So it was like, like a choice that like, I don't think many like white actors ever have to think about, but like picking roles because you just want to make money or like denying those roles because they like hold up certain stereotypes or are problematic. And that's just like not a thing. I think that white people really have to think about too, too much. And so there's like a lot of pressure that seems to be here for black actors and directors and creatives that um, I just think like must be so difficult um, on top of just trying to be a creative and like get your work out there and stuff. Um, so before we get into the movie, I just want to play a little clip from Marvin Van Peebles uh, talking specifically about black exploitation films, um, since Sweetback is like supposed to be one of the first ones. So I'm just going to pull that up very quickly. A lot of people say that that Sweetback was the beginning of the quote unquote black exploitation movies. It was, but it was, but but, but it is Sweetback itself was. They did a very clever thing. They took out the the political significance. They they buffooned up the the characterizations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then they had a black hero, which you never had a black hero before. You weren't even allowed to wear mustaches before. You know what I mean? Hmm? Well, what do mustaches have to do with anything? Well, it it shows virility. Look at the old films. You you. you hmm? If you have a beard or something, you'd better be white. You say they took out the, for the black exploitation films, they took out the political content. Mm -hmm. What was the political content, what was the political message that you were getting across with Sweetback? 
Sweetback defied the police. He did the right thing, etc. In fact, Sweetback was considerably so. It was the Black Panther Party made it obligatory viewing for all of their members. Because it was about standing up to... About standing up, about justice, about how to think, about what went down. Yes, absolutely. And that, and that violence, this, we're, we're not talking about non-violence here. This is, a, this is a, you know, get if your gun and take care of business. If somebody messes with you, ain't a Bible that needs it's a brick. Come on. I mean, that, please. <laughs> so how did you feel when these black exploitation movies started coming out and people were equating Sweetback with, with those movies? Well, they're, they're, but, they're, but in a way they were right. I mean, it's, it showed that there was an audience for other things because, you know, before you go to movies, you see some movie about getting lynched, you know, and you go to party, people say, well, my maid loves it. The maid needs a job. What do you expect her to say? Uh, you, know, you know what I mean? But it, it, this happened. Meantime, back at this ranch, a lot of people got to learn their craft. Hmm? And that's just that's just Hollywood, of course. I mean, please, I, you you can't expect right from everything, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was, of course, that was a smart move. I was not in a position to just like right now, just lay in the gut until the thing gets all ready, run, and bam, I go again. But you make your move when and where and how. Um, so he mentioned something like that. I just like think is is interesting with just like the political message of, of the movie and like what he's like attempting to do with this and also like how this was a chance to learn like a craft. Um, so this is very, very early on, like in his filmmaking and like he couldn't really get this funded um, and had a lot of trouble like breaking into Hollywood. Um, I think the budget I found was like, it was like, um, one thousand like five hundred dollars to make this, uh, or fifty that one hundred fifty thousand dollars to make this, and like yeah. fifty thousand dollars was actually donated by Bill Cosby, um, which he wanted to try to help like these films get made, um, and he was actually in a couple episodes of the Cosby Show, so clearly like they had this relationship too, um, but. You know, he, like, when he talks about the film, like, a little bit more in depth, he kind of just talks about, like, oh, I want to make a movie. So he just, like, bought as much, like, real as he needed to make, like, an hour and a half long film, not really thinking about the fact that you need to, like, edit and cuts and all of this stuff. So it's, like, it's really just, like, him learning his craft. And you, uh, Connor, you mentioned Dalma, It Is My Name, which, like, same with Rudy Ray Moore, where it's like, he didn't really know much about filmmaking, but like people weren't giving him money. And so like he made this film starring himself in his community, like with his friends and stuff. Um, so it's like kind of interesting how these movies came about. Um, and then I think this movie ended up making like $15 million. So it 15.2 million. Yeah. Shit ton of money. So makes sense that all of a sudden Hollywood got interested in like trying to produce some of these like exploitative movies after the fact, because like, obviously there was money to be made here. Um, but, um, the movie itself, uh, is, um, about Sweetback who is, um, 
it opens up, unfortunately, trigger warning with like a rape scene. He's a very young kid and he's raped by a woman in a brothel where he's like growing up essentially. And then it cuts to him as an adult and he's like still working, doing like these sex shows within the brothel. And then um, is like brought in by the cops. Um, the cops basically say that oh, well, like, we need to just, like, get someone in, like, who committed this crime. So we're going to, like, bring you in and, like, you'll just come back in a couple days. We'll drop the charges, whatever. Um, and it seems like kind of this is something they do a lot when they just, like, don't have the any evidence. They just, like, would bring someone in. Um, and so while this is happening, they also pick up, like, what seems to be the leader of a, blank, of a Black Panther um, party, and they, the police just start beating him. And he goes and kills those two police officers um, and then is essentially on the run for the rest of the movie, um, trying to help this Black Panther leader get out of the area as well and um, trying to, like, get away to Mexico. Um, and so while he's doing this, of course, the cops are around and you know, beating and killing witnesses and just like trying to get him for, for killing these cops. Um, so it's a really weird and strange story as like many of these black exploitation and exploitative films tend to be, um, but like does have these like political messages of the Black Panther Party and also like standing up to the police. Um, so I want to kind of ask you guys, uh, I, was this first time for everyone? I think Dave, you said you've seen it before, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, uh, just like kind of broadly, what are some thoughts you guys had seeing this? Like, again, I know it seems like none of us really have like much experience with this genre. So sorry. I'm really just interested in like what you guys think. I definitely appreciate all the thematic elements of it. Um, and definitely it's relevance in, um, you know, black exploitation movies, you know, movies of that era. Uh, but this movie kind of had a hard time. It was like, there were moments where I was like gripped with what was going on and then long stretches where I kind of had a hard time focusing or kind of piecing together the plot. But after thinking about it, I don't think that's really kind of the point. Um, the, the choice of song feels really intentional because it is sort of like lyrical, the movie. Um, there's like ups and downs. And I don't think like plot isn't, I, don't know, I feel like we're in like such a plot driven society that sometimes it's hard to watch a movie that is not focused on plot being the number one important element of and like logic and whatnot. Um, so I think looking back, the movie has grown in fondness, but after that kind of first reaction, I was just right after watching, I was kind of like, what did I just watch? Like what was, there's a whole lot of running in the whole movie. Lots of running. Lots of running. Christine, you're muted still. I think um, lyrical is such a great way to describe the movie. I, I was really uh, struck by its sort of like frenetic energy um, and it, some of the layering shots. It made it hard to follow the narrative, but at the same time made it such um, a fun watch. And I feel like uh, Van Peebles uses the technique of repetition so well and so interesting um like a lot of characters repeat lot or the movie repeats the characters lines over and over and over and over again um and so i think that connects to that notion of of, of song elements and repetition and and um 
providing sort of like visual beats uh, as well as the amazing Earth, Wind and Fire <laughs> uh, soundtrack. So um, yeah, even when I was like not <laughs> really sure what was going on, it was definitely engaging um, to see some really, really experimental um, technique, like filming techniques and, and sound. Oh, so the sound design too. When the, when the guy in the, in the shower cap is getting interrogated, or is that a different scene? There's a man being interrogated and the police shoot near his, both his ears and the sound of that shot, like ringing in his ears was so piercing and really effective. So I watched it. I watched Moonlight last night and then I was like, wow, I loved this movie so much. Like, I'm just like really motivated to keep watching. And so like I, I put on this movie and was like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> um, but you know, like obviously like that's the point your jaw is supposed to drop and like never really get picked back up. Um, I like always appreciate when like the rug gets pulled out from underneath me um, because I think that like, I'm always expecting what's going to happen. I'm always like not surprised. So when it does shock me, I just like, <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, I will say that I watched the opening scene and opening credits and turn it off. And then I finished watching it this morning <laughs> because I was like, uh-uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it. Um, and, I, and I wonder if there's something to it though. Like I, I couldn't watch it in one sitting. I wonder if like other folks have that experience too in order to digest it, you got to chop it up. I think that makes sense. Um, I also think that like, because I go to so many of these like movie marathons where I'm watching like a ton of movies like this in a row, I like, I guess I've kind of gotten used to some of like the cuts and pacing and just like imagery and stuff that just kind of like pops up that you don't really expect. Like this is such a like a special time in cinema. It's like so weird. And there's and it's not just like, you know, these types of movies, like um, some of my favorite like horror movies, like Dario Argento movies, like have these two where there's just weird scenes and then it cuts to something else. And um, but yeah, like that, that totally makes sense. And like the opening scene is like kind of hard to watch too. So yeah, that, <laughs> that all makes a lot of sense to like digest some of that, you know. You mean the opening scene where, like, all these women are in line and, like, he's just, like, at the table eating whatever it is. And, like, there's nothing inherently wrong about it, but everything felt wrong. It's it's so it's so interesting. And, like, one of the things that I, I really thought was just, like, interesting about the director, Melvin Van Peebles, in general, was that, like, he wanted to break into film. He had like gotten out of the Air Force and he was saying like every, like everyone he knew in the Air Force had like gotten jobs right away, but he was also the only black person like in his division. And so he was like the only person having trouble finding jobs. And he really wanted to break into the film industry. He like tried to show some of the short films he created and that just like didn't work out. And then he moved to Holland to learn to be an astronomer and that was like his second plan and then some and then like somehow people saw his movies and um they were shown in France and then he like got like a little bit of traction that way but it was like no formal training no like Hollywood backing so it like 
really was like this like very early like black director like just going out and doing it all on his own um and so yeah some of that stuff is like is like kind of like strange and odd but I it's like also just interesting watching someone who like had to teach themselves how to like do all of this stuff um it kind of reminds me of people making films on like youtube or tiktok oh yeah like now like all these filmmaking powers are like democratized like you can make like good editing doesn't require fancy software it just requires iMovie and a sense of timing so it's kind of interesting seeing how much harder it was even just a decade or two ago to make a movie you know just thinking about how easy it is now to technically like make a movie and just to appreciate all the effort that he had to put in you know in the 1970s to make this that shot, that running shot, I mean, there are a lot of, as Connor, you said, there's a lot of running, but the high shot where you see um, Sweetback running down those canal, you know, the classic LA canals um, looked so good. And he was so small running away out of the frame. Um, A movie I would love to see that I learned about when reading about this movie is the movie Mario Van Peebles did in 2003, Badass, where he plays his father and it's a movie about the making of Sweet Sweetback um, and addresses how he had to play Sweetback as a boy in that opening scene. Like, it, like so that's on my to-watch list because I would love to see the behind the scenes. Um, yeah of the movie i agree and, and Sam- watch him play his father too oh though. yeah that's that's insane to me that like it's like he's like i've seen inter- when i was like prepping for this i also saw interviews with like the two of them working together and that's i, I love that i think that's like cool that they've like bonded over films in, a, in that way and that he like went on to then like try to do some stuff on his dad and kind of like the legacy that he's left behind too um, and then, like, there's, of course, like, the thematic stuff, which, like, Sam, I thought about, like, Black, uh, Black Klansman a lot when I was watching this, because, you know, obviously, like, the, the Black Panthers play a role in this, um, like, the person he rescues is, like, one of the leaders, um, and then you also have, like, the cops who are mostly white, who are, you know, like, intimidating and oftentimes, like, hurting witnesses, like, pretty pretty badly but then there's that that speech that the cops are giving where they're like saying that they have to get like these n-words and everything and then as everyone's walking out there's just like two black cops there and he's like oh I'm like really sorry about all that language but like if you get this guy you'd be like a real asset to your community and so it's like this really weird moment where these like white men in charge of the police department are like trying to like get these guys to be like I don't know like go go against their community values but like as a way to be like yeah we're we're cops and we're like helping out the community and it's just it, it was like a very small moment in the movie, but I felt like spoke volumes also to like what it would be like to be like a black cop at that time um, where there's like like this rampant racism and like obviously like mostly white people working in the department. Um, let me check my notes quick. I think that's like mostly what I wanted to talk about. Um, one thing I wanted to 
quickly mention was just that, um, I mean, uh, Melvin Van Peebles is like still alive and like even in 2018 was like acting and stuff. So um, he's like much older now, obviously. And like a lot of like the interviews I found of him, it's like a little bit hard to understand what he's saying. Unfortunately, I was like trying to, the translation, the closed captioning was like really bad um, on some of the stuff too that I was trying to find. But um, he's like still working and doing a bunch of stuff. He acted in a lot of movies as well, including things like Jaws, The Revenge, um, The Last Action Hero, and also in The Hebrew Hammer, which I thought was kind of funny, which obviously that's like a more modern day movie that's supposed to be like, you know, a reference to a lot of these like exploitation movies of the time. Um, and like has gotten more accolades, like now that he's like older and people have started to kind of recognize like what he has done for film. Um, but I found a quote for him that I thought was really funny, which was, um, from years ago. And he just said, I'm not going to let the accolades come to me when I'm in a wheelchair, get a little more feeble Melvin and we'll recognize you right now. I'm a little too dangerous. I intend to stay dangerous. Um, which I just like really loved that. Um, and you know, I think it was a couple of years ago that he got, um, invited into like the Academy, um, which I guess he is getting accolades now that he's older, but that seems to kind of be the way this goes sometimes, unfortunately. But, um, I'm glad that like you guys watched this with, with me and everything. And, um, I definitely want to learn kind of like more about these films and like see more of them and, and kind of get an idea of, what these films were like, even the differences between when um, they were like black directors and then sometimes like white directors doing some of these films too, um, which I'm assuming is not great, but I just think it's really interesting how big a difference, like who is, who the people behind the lens are in these films and like what that really makes to the filmmaker, or what that really like changes in the filmmaking for these. Well, um, I guess to kind of wrap up as opposed to doing like our normal plugs, um, I thought it might be nice for like us to give some um, either film, book, media recommendations for like um, POC folks as well as like places to donate or like businesses to support um, locally, um, which I thought would be nice to do uh, if anyone has any suggestions. Um, two books. Uh, I would highly recommend They Can't Kill Us All. Um, the Struggle for uh, Black Lives, which was written by um, Wesley Lowry. Um, I would also recommend uh, Brittany Cooper's uh, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower, which is a fantastic read. Um, and I would also recommend, uh, if, if folks are looking for any kind of uh, sources to donate to or anything like that, I would recommend the Oprah Project. Uh, this is an organization um, that works with... Um, trans individuals of color providing, uh, providing meals and uh, additional financial support, um, a really great program and definitely, uh, definitely worth a look. So uh, those are two, uh, two sources and uh, one organization off the bat that I think uh, would be worth everyone's time to have a look at. Um, I haven't delved too deeply into their collection of uh, episodes, but um, was just finding some uh, pod podcasts um, about like blacks, uh, black filmmakers, um, and black podcasters talking about black filmmakers. Some that I came across and listened to a couple, or one is called Medium Popcorn, which I thought was really uh, 
really funny kind of connection to, uh, to butter with that. Um, another one is Michelle mission is a Philadelphia podcast. Um, um, focuses on black filmmakers. Another one is black on black cinema. Um, it's out of Baltimore and they talk a lot about, uh, some films we've, we've covered as well. Um, uh, sorry to bother you, us Fruitville station. So it was kind of interesting to listen to clips, um, about movies that we've talked about and get, uh, other perspectives. So you can check those out. Let us know what you think. Um, I have um, two books. So one is Black Klansman by Ron Stallworth. I am going to read that. I actually have it on my shelf. I can't believe I haven't read it. Um, and then the other one is a, a recent book that I've purchased that, you know, reminds me a little bit of everything that we've talked about tonight, which is why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Um, I'm 25% the way through it. And it's a really great read. Um, when it comes to organizations to donate to. Um, considering everything that we do, um, one organization that I've recently made a donation to is Books Through Bars. It's a Philly organization that is, um, it works on collecting books and then distributes them to people in prison right now that they can't do that um, because of the uh, pandemic. So instead they're making zines and um, people are volunteering doing that. So um, any money that they get, they put to use. Um. Yeah, I have a couple, like, suggestions for for reads and stuff. Um, I've been trying to make a point of it this year just to read, like, more writers that are, like, a little bit more diverse in general. Um, but two, like, POC writers I've read this year. Um, I read um, N.K. Jemison's new book. She's one of my favorite female sci-fi writers. Um, but the book is called The City We Became. Um it's really, really interesting. Um, it's going to eventually when, as she keeps writing, it's going to be a trilogy, but, um, it takes, it's like sci-fi that takes place in modern time and kind of tackles like, um, HP Lovecraft and some of his racist stuff, which is interesting. Um, and like gentrification. Um, so it's just, she's a fantastic writer. Basically anything, uh, you read of hers will be good. Um, but that was amazing. Um, and then the other book that I really recommend is, uh, like a fantasy book by Marlon James called, uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf that I read this year, um, which is kind of like Lord of the Rings meets, um, like African folklore. It's really, really cool. And that also will be a trilogy as Marlon James writes more uh, books. So definitely suggest those. And then two, um, like, local businesses I wanted to mention. One is Uncle Bobby's, which is, like, Philly-based. It's a bookstore in Philly. Um, it's Black-owned. You should definitely support them. Um, they have You can buy books from them through bookshop.org, but you can also um, donate um, they like, unfortunately just had like one of their front windows broken in like this weekend. So if you can donate to them, I'm sure they would appreciate it. Um, and then the other is Philadelphia Printworks, uh, which is, um, female owned as well. And she makes a lot of awesome t-shirts. I bought a couple and I'm waiting for my James Baldwin sweatshirt, which I'm very excited about. Um, but she also has an abolished ice shirt. That's like amazing. So, um, definitely check her stuff out too. Um, well, um, yeah, tell us what you think about the episode. Tell us like, you know, what we're doing, what we could do more of. Um, also let us know if you have suggestions of other like 
directors, types of movies, things we should explore. I know for me personally, like recently with like Pride Month, I realized that like there's a lot of like essential LGBTQ films I haven't seen. So I know that's an area I want to work on a little bit more too. So um, definitely looking for like suggestions for stuff. Cool. Yeah, thank you for sticking with us for almost two years and um, listen to this episode. I think we got some exciting stuff in the works. And if you want to see more episodes like this, yeah, I would love to do them. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.